0: Uh, if you're just joining us, we are finishing our summer series on the book of Psalms, and starting next week, we're going to be teaching through the book of Titus, verse by verse. Uh, so we're looking at Psalm 133, our last psalm for the... Any else sad about that? I'm kind of sad about that. Psalm 133, Christian, hear God's word to us this morning. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Friends, the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of joint and marrow, of spirit and soul. And it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And before it, all of us are naked and exposed to him whom we must have to give an account. Christian, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated? Well, as we're wrapping up Psalms uh, this summer, uh, I just have a quick question for you, if that's okay. Uh, What song is playing? You know, imagine you and I are in your car right now, driving away from the smoke-filled valley towards Bend or somewhere cool. The sun is setting and, you know, there's nothing but clear skies, perfect weather, no humidity, the windows are down, we're on a road trip together. What song is playing on the radio? Don't you love road trip songs? Uh, Well, what we're looking at today in Psalm 133 is a road trip song. Uh, If you look down at Psalm 133, you may notice in your Bible right there, uh, before it says the word, behold, uh, in little um, font letters right there, it says, a song of ascent of David. And you may have never thought about what those words ever have meant, uh, but songs of ascent are 15 songs or psalms, in the book of Psalms that are all road trip songs. So if you look over at Psalm 120, the songs of ascent really begin. Oh, also full disclosure, if you don't know this already, this is a deep dive. You know what that means? We are going deep into God's word. So right now, like you know, lick your fingers because get ready to turn the pages a bunch this morning. I didn't get a single amen about that. Oh, what a bummer. Somebody was like, amen, and then somebody said, oh, Lord, help me now, right? Okay, so (laughs) we're going deep. Just just get ready for it. Put your seatbelt on. Here we go. All right, so songs of ascent. uh, As we dive into Psalm 133, you got to focus on what that phrase means. So if you look at Psalm 120, it says it right there, a song of ascent. And if you flip a few pages in your Bible, you'll notice from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, they all say songs of ascent. There are 15 songs of ascent. And that Hebrew word right there, ascent, is also uh, close to the word for steps, you know, like these kind of steps right here. So what does that mean? Well, scholars are kind of divided. There's really two options that you could choose from. Um, The Jewish Mishnah, which is kind of like a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, it writes that the 15 songs of ascent were meant to be sung on the 15 steps of the temple. And so there's a song for every step, hence a song of steps. So you would sing Psalm 120 on step one, and each step gets another song. Um, The other option which more scholars now accept, and which I personally find more convincing, is that these songs of ascent are actually road trip songs. Uh, You may remember in the Old Testament, God's people we were called to go to Jerusalem, to Zion, the city of God, three times a year for Passover and for Pentecost and for the Feast of Booths. So three times a year, God's people would ascend to Jerusalem. And no matter where you were in Israel, you always go up to Jerusalem. You know, even if your house is a higher elevation, you still go up to Zion, to Jerusalem. And so these songs... Uh, were sung as Israelites would go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord their God. Um, and I think that sheds light on a lot of other interesting passages in the psalm. So like in Psalm 42, for instance, uh, the psalmist declares this, these things I remember, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, who uh, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival, Right? So over and over, we get this idea that there's a throng, a multitude that would go to Jerusalem. And uh, if if you know the New Testament, the New Testament is full of references to these annual feasts, right? Well, when does Jesus get crucified? It's Passover. That's why all the Israelites are in Jerusalem. When do the apostles receive the Holy Spirit? It's Pentecost. And how do all of the men of Israel hear about the gospel? It's because they've all come for the annual feast. And so three times a year, God's people would go from all of their little hamlets, all of their little communities, and they would ascend to the hill of the Lord, Zion, the city of God. And these were the songs that they would sing to each other, Uh, which explains right in verse two, you know, there's a kind of like lilting repetition. You know, it's like we get it. It's about a beard. How many times do you have to say beard, right? Or remember, this is a song. Look at verse two, right? It is like the precious oil on the head. Running down, on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down, right? You hear the repetition. You ever get bored singing like the same line over and over again in a song? Well, I guess you're better Christians than I am, so I guess you don't get bored of that. Sometimes I do, but every song has repetition in it. Even the Psalms have that, right? And that's what helps you remember something, right? And so, you know, you may think that's repetition, but this is a song. And it's meant to be sung as a road trip song. And so what is this Psalm all about? Look at Psalm 133. What did God's people need to know as they're coming to Jerusalem? They needed to know how good and pleasant it is when God's people are unified. Uh, Christian, what does the American church most need to hear today? <laughs> we need to be unified. Nothing? I got nothing from that? nothing let me try another way every christian in america should be a presbyterian amen. thank thank you thank you that's actually the wrong answer but that's cool i guess that someone says amen uh, but friends you just have to just pause for a, a, a moment and let's do um just a recap of our family history if we can um, Are we the first Christians, the first of God's people to struggle with unity? You know, I mean, this is David, right? Right there, remember, this is a Psalm 133 of David, right? David knew all about disunity. In fact, he goes all the way back to the garden, right? What do the first brothers do? Well, one of them kills his brother. All right, think about the 12 sons of Israel. Remember them? The 12 tribes all come from 12 sons. Well, how did those 12 brothers, the patriarchs, how did they treat each other? Well, you may remember that they got really annoyed with the youngest brother and they tried to kill him, but it's okay because better heads prevailed and they just sold him into slavery, right? They're so ashamed. Of, yeah, it's not, that's not the right thing to do in case you needed me to say that. It's the wrong thing to do. But you may remember they're so ashamed of what they did that the oldest brother, he moves away. He can't live with himself. He actually removes himself from his family and his community because he's so ashamed that he sold his younger brother. He can't even look his father in the eyes anymore. And then their kids, the 12 tribes, before they ever had you know, a king, they had judges. And during the time of judges, you can read all about it. Well, how did the tribes treat each other? Often they were going to war with each other. They would kill each other. In fact, that's how the book of Judges ends is the tribes ganging up on another clan. And then think about during Jesus' time. Were God's people unified? You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the zealots who were sort of hardcore right-wing, take back the land for God. And then on the other end, you had tax collectors like Luke who were co-opted into working for Rome. And think about it, Jesus, when he assembles 12 apostles, he takes somebody who is a zealot and he takes Luke, the tax collector. And then the division of God's people runs right through the course of the entire New Testament. In fact, there's whole books of the New Testament devoted to the problem of disunity. I mean, what does Paul say to the church in Corinth? Some of you say you're of me. Some of you say you're of Apollos. You all are of Christ. This is wrong. And then the book of Ephesians, he's pleading with the Ephesians. He says, do you not know that in the man Jesus Christ, through faith in Christ, God is bringing about a new humanity, a new way of living, a new kingdom that is not based on race or gender or tribe or clan, You are all one in Christ. To those who are near and to those who are fall, in his body he has torn down the dividing wall of hostility, and in the place of two men he has created one. See, he's talking to Jewish believers and Gentile believers and saying, don't you see that in Jesus we are made one humanity? God is creating a new way of living. We all must bow the knee to King Jesus. And that crosses every divide. I mean, Paul says it this way in Galatians. He says, now there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all what? One in Christ. See, this is what the church is, the body of Christ. When you and I bow the knee, we are being brought together with a pretty odd, weird group of people. But it's your family. Christian, and you don't choose your family, right? Unity has been a problem for us for a long time. It's our family history. And friends, we need to hear it just as much as David needed to hear it, just as much as David needed to declare it. How good it is when Christians dwell together in unity. How good it is when churches partner with each other. When Christians rejoice at other Christians succeeding. Now, I told you this was a deep dive. So go to that very first verse. This idea of beautiful unity, the beautiful unity that the body of Christ is supposed to show. I mean, it's all captured in that word, behold. Um, last week, you may remember, I invited you to know the difference between just looking at something and gazing at it, Right? Um, I loved what, um, I think it was Dave Henderson came up to me after the service, and he said, uh, you know, what's the difference between looking and gazing? And he said, what do you do when you drive? You look. What do you do when you look at a baby? You gaze at the baby. You know, last week I invited you to gaze at God's word, because that'll change you. And every time you see the word behold, look at verse 133.1, that very first word, behold. I want you to like circle that in your Bible. Um, Some Bible translations are taking that word out because nobody says, behold, I have arrived at Trader Joe's. Lo, I am here to buy groceries. Nobody talks like that anymore. But the word behold is so precious and amazing. It is meant to say, hey, are you listening? Behold, gaze at what I'm about to tell you. It is important. Gaze at it. I mean, think about the way the Bible uses the word behold. To Abraham, the very first Israelite, the father of the nation of Israel, God says, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of what? A multitude of nations. Not just of one. You're not the father just of Israel. You are the father of nations. Behold, gaze at that. What does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus for the first time? Behold the Lamb of God. Who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. Remember when Pilate met Jesus? Pilate had him flogged. So Jesus was whipped mercilessly until you could have seen the bones on his back. He had a crown of thorns forced on his head. He was blindfolded and beaten. John tells us, On the day of preparation for Passover, while God's people are assembled for this annual feast, Pilate marches Jesus out, beaten, bloodied, and bruised, and he says, Behold, your king. And what do Christians say? (laughs) I am beholding my king. In Revelation, Jesus says, I died, and behold, I live forevermore. Paul tells us this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye at the sound of the trumpet. Behold, I am with you, even until the end of the age. A Christian, every time the Bible says the word behold, it's precious. It's precious. And what are we supposed to behold today? The beauty and the power, um, the cool, refreshing water of God's people dwelling together in unity. Look at verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. David's going to give us just two short images of what that unity's like. Verse 2, he says it's like oil dripping down on Aaron, the high priest. And then it's like dew from Mount Hermon falling through Mount Zion. And I think right there, Christian, there's a lesson for us. What is it that unifies God's people? Well, David gives us really two images. You know, we see the unity of God's people in the priesthood of Aaron. And then he says, you see it in Mount Zion. I told you this was a deep dive, so get ready. So what does it mean that you and I see the beauty of the unity, the unity of God's people in the priesthood? Um, Well, look at the verse right there. Aaron, right, you may remember Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother, and he is the first priest. That's the thing you need to know. He is the first priest. David hasn't met him. He's saying, Aaron, the great priest, the guy who founded it all, the unity of God's people is like the priesthood. Now, what in the world does that mean? Um, You may have heard this before, but it's important to remember that in the ancient Israelite world, there are three unique offices, and you are not supposed to double dip, right? There are three. It's like the United States, right? Separation of powers, right? In ancient Israel, there's three offices of leadership. First, you have the king, who's the political leader, right? Like King Saul or David. And then you have another category of leaders. They're not political by nature, but they are prophetic. They speak on behalf of God. And they're the prophets. They're guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah. They're women like Huldah and Deborah. They speak on behalf of God. And usually it's like, kind of bad news for God's people. Usually they're like, repent. And people don't really like prophets because they're constantly challenging them. But prophets speak on behalf of God, but they don't have political power, right? They don't have political power, but they have prophetic power. But there's a third category of leaders in the Old Testament, and they're called priests. And priests would make sacrifices on your behalf when you sinned. Now, when you and I sin today, you know, we like don't even really think about it because we just know Jesus forgives us, right? We don't really confess our sins because, you know, that's a downer. Well, in the Old Testament, if you sin, you can't just pray about it. You don't just say, God, I'm sorry, you know. What you have to do in the Old Testament is if you sin, you have to go to your local priest, confess your sin, and then you would offer a, a sacrifice. An animal would die on behalf of your sin, and you would watch it die. And you would recognize that God is holy. And when I sin against him, it does not please him. And this animal's dying so that I don't have to. And so over and over and over and over again for hundreds and hundreds of years, the priests of Aaron would make sacrifice after sacrifice for sins. You see, but in the Old Testament, they don't see that as bloody and gory the way you and I maybe would. They see it as life itself because they knew that they were sinners and to be made right with God, to be reconciled to God, there had to be a priest who would do it for me, who would make a sacrifice on my behalf so I could sing the praises of God. Thank God for the priests. I can be reconciled through the blood of the sacrifice. And so for David, he rejoices at the priesthood. He rejoices at Aaron because it reminds him that there is a way to be reconciled to God. But Christian, you and I know that all of these priests, after sacrifice, after sacrifice, all of the priesthood was leading us to whom? The ultimate priest. The ultimate sacrifice for sins. And that's exactly how Jesus saw himself. You see, you're not supposed to be king and priest. You're not supposed to be king and prophet. Only David could do that. But you know, friend, there's only one person who could be the true king, the true prophet that Moses prophesied about, and the true priest. And the New Testament tells us his name is Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, and he is your high priest. Go to Hebrews with me. We're going for it, you guys. Still no amens on that. All right, we're going for it. My goal in life, you need to know this, my goal in life is for us collectively one day to attain to the moment when we preach through Hebrews together. We're not there yet. We're going to take one small step towards that. But one day, one day we're going to preach through Hebrews because we will be ready. This is like doctoral level theology, okay? Jesus is the high priest. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. 4, 14 in Hebrews. Hebrews says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, Christian, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with what? confidence. Christian, who is the priest that makes you clean by the blood of the sacrifice? It's not me. It's not me. You do not have an earthly man priest. You have the God man. You have Jesus, fully God, fully man. Now, I was raised in Virginia for high school. And uh, back where, um, if you're from Virginia, you know, people are quirky, right? And if you're, if you're from Virginia, you get real bent out of shape if somebody says you're from where? West, West Virginia. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when people, you know, my name's Dustin, and my last name starts with a J. And so a lot of people, I think, carry the J forward, and they call me Justin. Um, if you do it, I, I totally forgive you. It does not offend me. I don't correct people when they call me Justin. I get it. Uh, but you better believe when I was in high school, if they were like, "This is Justin from West Virginia," I'd be like, "I am not from West Virginia." You'd be sort of like, "Oh, you're from Oregon, so you live in, in you live in Portland, right?" <laughs> Ooh, no. No, 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 very different, right? It is right now. What I'm driving at, friend, is. Call no man priest. I'm not your priest. No pastor is your priest. You have one priest. I'm your pastor. I like to teach the Bible to people, but I shed no blood for you. I have not died for you. I never will. And I never will. I'll never love you that much. Sorry. <laughs> I'll love you with everything I can, but that's not enough. You know why? Because you need a perfect, spotless sacrifice. You need Jesus your priest. He brings you into the presence of God Himself. You need no man. You need no man. I can help you, but I can only help you to the extent that I bring you closer to Jesus, your high priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins, and then for the people. Since he did this, how many times? Once for all, when he offered up himself. Hebrews ten eleven. And every priest, every other priest... He stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which we know can never really take away sins. But when Christ Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You see, friends, the unity that God's people had going to the priest's was always meant to lead us to the ultimate priest, Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king, who brings us with confidence into the presence of God. And Christian, that's what unifies Christians. It's not um, the same denominational name. um, It's not good marketing. It's not our style of worship. It is nothing man-made. What brings the communion of saints together, what unites God's people, is Jesus who is reconciling people from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue, and creating in the place of two people, one. And Christian, that is the message of the gospel. You know the unity that this world yearns for? I mean, don't you feel it when you watch the news? People yearn to be reconciled. And friends, um, the only thing that could ever bring about unity in God's world is God's grace through God's Son. Everything else is just sophisticated self-interest. Every other, every other plan to unify humanity is really just sophisticated self-interest. You do you, and I'll do me. Why? You do you so I can do me. Sophisticated self-interest. Friends, in God's world, what He has designed in the kingdom of God is He is reconciling people from every nation, language, and tongue, from Egypt, from the Philistines, to the Oregonians, to the Portlanders, or whatever you call them. Don't say what you really call them. (laughs) There is a new humanity centered around King Jesus, and this world is starving for it. And so is our church. Friends, the unity, when you taste it, when you love each other from a profoundly deep, gospel-centered, Jesus-focused love. There's nothing better. There's nothing more pleasant. David finishes up in verse 3, such a short little song, right? He finishes up with this beautiful image. You know, we see God's people unified around the priesthood, which for us, we are unified now around Jesus. And he also says, it's like Mount Zion, And he has this beautiful... he says, it's like the the highest peak in Israel. It's like the the peak of Israel. Mount Hermon, which is about the height of Mount McLaughlin. It's like... He's like, if the dew from that mountain could sweep through the dusty streets of Jerusalem. And wouldn't you love to see the, the snow melt from Mount McLaughlin sweep through the Rogue Valley right now? That's how good it is when God's people are unified. But what's so amazing about that little sentence right there is that Hermon, if you look down right there, Hermon, that mountain is a hundred miles from Zion. It's a hundred miles from Jerusalem. There's never been a day where the dew from Mount Hermon has ever swept through Zion. And I love what Tim Keller talks about um, when he's commenting on this verse. He says, for Hermon's dew, a hundred miles away, to fall on Mount Zion would be a miracle. And so is the supernatural bond that brings people far from divergent cultures, races, and classes together together. In Christ. The unity and love He gives to us is like precious oil making people fragrant and attractive to us, who otherwise we would have dismissed or rejected. Friends, the unity of God's people around Mount Zion is nothing but a miracle. It is a miracle. It's like if the snow melt from Hermon could sweep through our streets you know what the miracle is? Out of Jerusalem, out of Zion, the city of God, salvation, life forevermore is being offered. And Christian, you may never have thought about what the word Zion means. You know, maybe you have the wrong impression of what the word Zion means. But um, almost every song of Ascent talks about Zion. Almost all of them. Um, Every song of Ascent talks about Jerusalem. But almost all of them explicitly talk about going to Zion. When you see it right in front of you in Psalm 132, verse 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. So what does Zion really mean? Is it just another name? It's a name for Jerusalem. Uh, but friends, you have to grasp that Zion is the spiritual name, the spiritual name of the city of God. Go to Psalm 87. Lick your fingers, turn to Psalm 87, right? You're getting more than you bargained for, but I won't charge you extra. Psalm 87 is going to tell us exactly about this city of God, the spiritual city. It's not just physical Jerusalem. Zion is the spiritual reality that Jerusalem is pointing towards. Listen to how the Old Testament is going to talk about the capital of the nation of Israel. This is um, profoundly amazing. On the Holy Mount stands the city he founded that is god the lord loves the gates of zion more than all of the dwelling places of jacob's right it's better than anywhere else in israel is zion glorious things of thee are spoken o city of our god and now zion is about to speak to us zion says these words among those who know me i mention rahab and babylon behold Behold, Philistia and Tyre, Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the peoples, the nations. In Zion, the city of God, the citizen registry, the list of people who are the citizens of Zion, don't just come from Israel. They come from Rahab, which is another word for Egypt. They come from Babylon. They're Babylonians. They come from the Philistines. They come from the Gentiles entire, And they even come from Cush. Now, you know what Cush is? Cush is the Bible word for Africa. You see, the Old Testament is saying Zion, the city of God, what Jerusalem is primarily pointing towards is the day when God would gather from every people, tribe, nation, and tongue the peoples that he calls by name to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. Friends, this is why the nation of Israel was formed, so that they might bless all the peoples of the earth. And Jesus comes declaring, Behold... The kingdom of God is at hand. There is a new community, a new life, and it's centered on me. And friends, you know who are some of the first Gentiles to become Christians? In Acts chapter 8, one of the first Gentiles is an Ethiopian eunuch. He's a man from Cush. His skin color was not like mine. And friends... The vast majority of us in this room are Gentiles. You and I are the fulfillment of Psalm 87. In Zion, God is bringing together a diverse people miraculously by the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he is forming a new man in this world. And that's what unifies God's people. Jesus, our high priest. Let me flip one last time to Hebrews. <sighs> not a single amen. Okay, <laughs> Not one. Friends, the author of Hebrews is trying to explain this, not only to his fellow Jews, the Hebrews that he's writing to, but all Christians, the Hebrew Christians and the Gentile Christians. He says, do you not get it? Do you not know what Zion was there all along for, what it's pointing towards? And he's trying to explain to Christians, and listen to what he says. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. He says this of every Christian. He says, Christian, you have come, where? To Mount Zion to the city of the living God. Christian, you have come to Mount Zion. Did you know that? You have come to a city you've never seen. You have come to a city you've never seen. You are citizens of Zion. And we are being gathered from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. And you and I, we have no abiding city here. We have no abiding city here. You notice what Hebrews tells us? Smoke comes, smoke goes. Your career comes, your career goes. Your children come, and they will go. You and I have no abiding city here, but we seek the city that is to come. You know, right now, back down south, um, there are a lot of African American churches. And you know what the most common name is in the south for an African American church? Mount Zion. Baptist Church. Why do you think that is? Because they had to be reminded in the face of white supremacy and oppression, slavery, that they were full heirs of Mount Zion. Christian, this is the hope of the world. This is what God is doing in this world. He is gathering people who bow the knee to King Jesus who experience the unity we all yearn for around the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, our King, and our prophet, and our high priest. Uh, Friends, this is an invitation to remember. (laughs) Remember the road trip songs of our people, that you and I are citizens of Zion, and how good and pleasant it is when we live like it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of Mount Zion. We thank you that we stand as the fulfillment of your word. And, Lord, we pray that we would be the aroma of Christ to our neighbors. Father, we thank you for every church right now that professes you as Lord. Would you strengthen them, protect them from the evil one? And, Father, would we love them more and more? And would you receive the glory? Jesus, thank you for being our high priest. Thank you for being our prophet. You alone have the words of truth. And thank you for being our priest. Lord, all we have to do is believe by faith and you will reconcile us. Thank you. Amen.